So uh, this past Friday, we had a funeral here at the church for Tootie Davidson. Uh, I didn't know Tootie that well. I've met her a few times, of course. She attended here for a little while. Uh, but uh, the reality is that right now, for every funeral that I do, uh, I either know very little about the person uh, or I've only known the person for a very short time. I've only been here for seven years. And one of the things, here's some inside baseball for you. If you didn't know, one of the things that scares me every time this happens is that I'm going to get up here because I don't know them very well or I've not known them very long. I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to say something that doesn't fit that person. That something's going to come out and somebody's going to be sitting out there going, I never remember Frank doing that. Years ago, I was asked to do the funeral of a gentleman that I had never met, never heard of before, and frankly, to this day, I have no idea why I was asked to do it. The only thing I remember is I was on the phone in my office, and the funeral director told me that what he was getting from the family is that this was not a very nice man. And he told me, and I remember this clear as day, he told me that he didn't think there'd be more than a handful of people, and they would only be there to make sure that he was dead. So you can imagine, I show up a little early for the funeral that day, and the chapel is packed. They're setting up chairs in the hallway to accommodate the amount of people that have come. I noticed way in the back there are even people from the church that I pastored at the time who showed up that I had no idea knew the guy. And of course, everybody in the first ten rows is just crying their eyes out. And here I am with a message that made little to no mention of the man that had died because I thought there was nothing nice to say. And afterwards, the family told me all sorts of nice things about him. That funeral director had given me a very bad picture of who that man was. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, you have probably heard this text or one of the ones that are like it preached. You probably know it inside and out. You probably have at one time or another, were a kid or have kids bring home papers and worksheets and even some of those actual palm branches. You may have been a Sunday school teacher and you've taught on this passage a number of times. Now my goal this morning, though, is to take all of that knowledge and all of those pictures and all of those worksheets and make sure that what we don't lose is the pictures of Jesus that are presented in this moment. And so what I have three points for you this morning, and I would call them the three pictures of Jesus that we get on Palm Sunday. Three pictures of Jesus we get on Palm Sunday. Number one, we see the gentleness of Jesus. We see the gentleness of Jesus. I want you to notice verse 28. It tells us that he ascended up to Jerusalem. Well, the idea is since Luke chapter 9, verse 51, he has been on his way to Jerusalem. And since for chapter 13, we're told that he's on his way. Chapter 17, we're told he's on his way. And so Luke has actually been telling the reader multiple times that Jesus is heading for Jerusalem. Now, why this is important is because of a few things. A couple of times, Jesus, during this journey, is going to cry over the city. He's going to talk about how the people in this place, the people in this city, are going to reject him. 
on this journey, he has told his disciples that he is heading to Jerusalem and that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be tortured, and he's going to be killed and rise the third day. And on, even on this journey, Jesus has been warned by outsiders that Herod may in fact be waiting for him in order to kill him, which was probably not an empty threat, seeing that it was Passover time, And nearly two million people were descending upon Jerusalem, a city that was known for rebellion. Jesus presented a real, actual security risk. And so we have this very tense, very difficult, very high-strung moment that Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem. Now, the thing is, though, I want you to note in the text the number of times that Luke is going to repeat the phrase loose or tied. You wonder maybe why is is Luke so efficient about telling us whether or not the donkey is tied up or whether or not he is loosed or whether or not he's loosed or tied up. Well, the thing is, is in Genesis chapter 49, the Bible says that all the rulers of Judah are going to come out of the house of Judah. And that most of those rulers are going to be the type who are going to tie up their horse and they're going to come to Jerusalem. And basically the idea is they're going to rule with an iron fist and they're going to eat until they get fat. Meaning these kings or these rulers of Judah were going to be the type to take advantage of the people. And by going to this loosening and tying of this donkey or this colt, Luke is pointing us back to the fact that Jesus is about to present himself very differently. So put all of that together. He's traveling on foot to get to Jerusalem. He goes there knowing he's going to be rejected. He goes there knowing the city is going to be destroyed. He He goes there knowing that those with power are making threats upon his life. He goes there knowing he's going to feel this excruciating pain. He's going to have to go through betrayal and rejection. He's walking into this incredibly hostile environment. But Luke wants us to understand that he is not like the Judah ruler in Genesis 49. He is a different ruler, not showing up on a horse, but a colt. The very symbol of gentleness. In fact, when Jesus cries out over the city, he calls himself a mother hen and the people of God, little chicks, and he just desires to be gentle with them, to help them seek refuge and protect them. That is the spirit in which he arrives in Jerusalem. Now, we have to get something straight here. Nobody is like this. Under these conditions, under this kind of pressure, with this kind of knowledge, there is not a single person in this room who would do things as Jesus does them here. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever walked into a hostile meeting? Maybe ever walked into a situation where you were going to get a performance review from a boss that you knew did not like you? Have you, had to always, have you ever had to go home to a spouse knowing that they're going to be there and they're already angry because they've gotten the news? Have you ever maybe been a child and had to come home to parents that you know that you're about to seriously disappoint and there's going to be a conflict? How do most of us handle those moments? We climb up on our horse and we get our weapons ready. And if you look around at the world around us, not much has changed. 
Today, we believe if somebody says something or does something or even thinks something that we find upsetting or insulting or offensive, we think the solution is to pour out anger, to pour out wrath, to be, bring all of our violent power down upon them. We're quick in this day to make people our enemies and, and that need to be reined in and controlled and conquered. But here we see Jesus arriving into this moment with gentleness. And I think we need to be clear, the fact that he arrives with gentleness does not mean that he arrives with passivity. Just because he's arriving on a colt and not a horse does not mean he arrives in this, in this moment as a passive person. You see, the religious leaders had made it very clear long before this that they were ready to arrest him. There's a big crowd. There's lots of noise. Things have gotten rather rowdy. This is not a passive moment, but he does enter with gentleness. And we know leading up to this moment, he has taught and he has led every day. He has labored to take care of people every day. And he has described himself as gentle. And it is why in Ephesians 4, we're told that the proper response of a Christian to what Jesus has done for us is to first live in humility, but what is second? To be gentle. Because that was the picture of him. So the first picture of this moment is a picture of gentleness. But then we come to the second picture we get in this passage, and that is the picture of authority, the authority of Jesus. So we get to verses 29 to 34. We find that Jesus sends two of his disciples to go into Bethany to get a colt. Now, Jesus has spent a great time in Bethany, likely when the disciples went to untie the colt. This is probably not a moment where these people thought they were being robbed. This is not a moment where they thought, well, why is somebody taking our cult? They're asking what's going on. They probably recognized the two disciples. They probably understood when they said the Lord had need of it. They probably knew that meant Jesus. And Jesus was very, very popular in Bethany due to what? The resurrection of Lazarus. So there was no fuss. There was love in that community. Nobody would have questioned why the colt was being taken. So that just really leaves the question, why would he want a colt? Well, of course, we see the fact that it was gentle. You see, entering into a city on a horse was a sign in that time of desiring submission. He wanted to make sure that people knew he was coming with these gentle, peaceful intentions. But there's another reason for the colt. Jesus is purposely fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. All the way back in Matthew 21, we're told that he does this on purpose to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Behold, your king is coming on a colt. This was a purposeful declaration. Jesus is using the sight, the smell, the excitement of the moment to say to the people as clearly as he could, I am king. Now remind yourself, there's been a lot of debate about who he is. You read through the Gospels, some people had theories. Herod thought that Jesus was the second coming of John the baptizer. The religious leaders thought he was just a demon-possessed man. 
Others thought he was the return of Elijah. The point, there's a point where his family thinks he's just a, another person who's lost their mind or another person who's just leaking out political glory. Crowds thought that he was another prophet rise, risen from the dead. And even more thought that he was going to be some sort of military general who was going to free them from the grip of Rome. This act of riding the cult into Jerusalem was very intentional. It was a declaration of his identity. He was the king, the king of kings, the lord of lords. Now, one of the funny things that happens every Easter is that people of every idea, people with every idea, people of all backgrounds, every political party, everybody who's got any sort of social platform, makes every possible argument they can that Jesus agrees with whatever thing that they're peddling around this time. In a place, in a, in a culture that does not want uh, Jesus' teaching on money, we don't live in a culture that wants Jesus' teaching on sex or humanity, but we do live in a culture that would love to have his authority. Here was someone who claimed to be king of kings and lord of lords. Here is somebody who is positioning himself as the very top of the pyramid on authority. And he didn't just claim it. You see it come out of him. You can't read the gospels and see him uh, cast out demons without seeing authority. You can't see him calm the storm without seeing authority. You don't see him feeding the 5,000 without seeing authority. And we're seeing over and over and over again the clear reality that nothing on earth is outside of his control. And nothing on earth is outside of his authority. So let's make some things clear here. The only option you have today, the only option you have in this life, is to agree with Jesus. There is no option for anyone to say this morning, Jesus agrees with me. It doesn't go that way. He doesn't share his authority. There is no human co-equal co-ruler with him. Or maybe let me say it this way. During the last year, there was a lot of news about authority. Particularly in the area of whether or not churches should be open or closed. And we watched some bad responses to this. We had some, of course, some politicians who thought for some reason they had every right to tell the people of God not to gather. And that's a problem. Because our authority said that as much as possible, God's people should gather regularly. And so it was never an option that we weren't going to gather because, because Jesus outranks them. But then we saw another very bad response. Those who declared themselves some form of a Christian leader or Christian influencer began to shout from the housetops that, or from the hilltops that Christians who weren't gathering in their building at 11 on Sunday, and if they weren't gathering without masks, then somehow they were in sin, and Jesus agreed with them. And you saw these kind of men because they would come out and they would begin. And it drove me to anger to hear them use the term sheep in such a derogatory way. It is a term of endearment from our authority. We are his sheep. 
Those kind of men stood up and said there was no room to disagree. There was no room for compromise, no room for conversation. Let me say to you, Jesus is the only person who has that kind of authority. My authority on your life results in two things. Me standing up here and telling you to stop doing dumb things. And then turning around and saying to God, please don't destroy them for doing the dumb things they're doing. That's the extent of my authority. It is not equal with his. And the same goes for any man who stands in a pulpit. It's always ugly, always terrible when somebody tries to grasp at the authority that is only his. But even with all of that, the fact that he has such unchallengeable authority is where we find security. Because when we put our faith in Christ and he says, we are his, when he says, we are forgiven, when he says, we have eternal life, there's no one, not even ourselves, that can challenge him. That picture of authority. And then number three, the last picture we find here is the worthiness of Jesus. The picture of worthiness. Look with me at verses 36 to 40. The Bible tells us that Jesus rode the colt and people began to put their coats here in this text. It's just colts. Others include the palm branches on the road before him. And they begin to make this statement, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, partially quoting Psalm 118. And we see these religious leaders saying, You need to quiet the crowd. And Jesus says, If they don't say it, the rocks are going to cry out. Let me first point out to you, this has all happened before. King Jehu, he rode into Jerusalem. King Solomon rode into Jerusalem. And for generations, people would sing the songs that are known as the Hallelujah Psalms, the the last of which is Psalm 118. They would journey every Passover, and as they began to get closer to Jerusalem, they'd start in Psalm 111. And when they saw Jerusalem, they would sing Psalm 118. And so this song, these words have been said over and over and over again for many generations. But there's something different. You see, Psalm 118 does not say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was the crowd that was providing the word king. They were making a declaration. And you see here the words in verse 38 are very, very similar to the declaration of the angels the night Jesus was born. Glory to God in the highest. This is what bothered the Pharisees so much. They saw the people as inching closer and closer to this perceived blasphemy, declaring Jesus the Messiah, the King, the Son of God. They were also very concerned about what was being said in public. They they were certain this kind of verbiage was going to bring about Rome's wrath. These were words of rebellion. Now let me tell you two things about this crowd. The first is that many of them who were saying these things were very misguided. They thought, many of them thought that Jesus was there to run Rome right out of the nation. They thought he was there to become king and to sit on the uh, sit as the head of state forever and ever. This moment for many in that crowd was an end times moment. 
They missed the fact that Jesus had come to conquer sin, not Rome. But the second thing you need to know about this crowd is that Jesus says that what they're doing in this moment is appropriate and genuine and that it would not be taken away from them. It was right, it was true, it was rowdy, and Jesus refuses to shut them up. Why? Because he was worthy of it all. The question was, on the Pharisees' minds, whether or not Jesus was worthy of these things. Is he worthy for them to risk the wrath of Rome? Is he worthy of the titles and the praise that people were giving him? Was he worthy of this kind of following, displacing people from their positions of society? And he says, yes. And he says, if they had refused to proclaim these things, then nature itself would have done the job. And we remind ourselves why Luke writes what he writes here. Remember, he tells us at the beginning of the book, he writes so that we can be certain. So that we can be absolutely sure that what we heard and what we believe is true. And for the first century reader, this would not just be about interviews. It would not just be about evidence that Luke collected. This wasn't just about proofs of miracles or records of what Jesus taught. There was included in it the question of whether or not he was worthy of absolutely upending your life. It's always been the question. Is Jesus so special as to be worthy of me changing my entire life? And the answer has always been yes. He is worthy of everything. From you pulling yourself to church in the morning when you don't want to, from those moments when you say no to the desire of the flesh when you want to go after it, he is worthy of your praise when you are at your lowest, your most afraid, your most disappointed, and he is worthy when you are at your highest, your safest, and most blessed. The picture of someone who is worthy. So here is what you can be certain about. Jesus is a gentle king who is worthy of being the object of your faith. With full knowledge of the hateful and violent thoughts of his en enemies, he entered with gentleness. With all of the confusion about who he was, he declared here that he was rightfully king. And we see here he is worthy of the gathered crowd, worthy of the praise, of the joy, of the expectations, just like he is today. And for all the familiarity of this day, for all of the worksheets and the paper and the knowledge and the teaching and the things you have heard over and over and over in your lifetime, do not lose these pictures. He is gentle. He has authority. And he is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry of Christ, and for the pictures that it puts before us. And I pray, Father, in all the busyness of this season, all of the things going on, we would not lose these pictures. We would see him clearly as a gentle king who is worthy of our worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.